magnesium. It is a key mineral in our body and needed for more than 300 different chemical reactions. It is also essential for muscle contractions and nerve transmission, while also keeping our heart beating steadily and your immune system strong. In this podcast, I'll outline the key functions of magnesium, as well as cover the different health conditions where magnesium is thought to play a role, such as heart disease and high blood pressure, diabetes, muscle cramping, and poor sleep quality. And then I'll look at the main food sources of magnesium and critique the merits of the many different supplemental forms of magnesium. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow. And I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator with most of this spent in the field of nutrition. How do you make sense of so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition? While I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements, or advertisements. Just credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language, and then translating this into what it means for your health. So on with today's show. Magnesium is an essential dietary mineral and the second most common electrolyte in the human body. You have about 30 grams of magnesium in your body, with half of this in the bones. Much of the rest of it is in the muscles and soft tissues, with only 1% in the extracellular fluid, where it serves as an electrolyte. As an electrolyte, it serves to maintain fluid balance. Magnesium is also a cofactor for hundreds of enzymes. Magnesium is involved in many physiologic pathways, including energy production, nucleic acid and protein synthesis, and cell signaling. Together with calcium, magnesium is involved in muscle contraction and blood clotting. Now, magnesium is critical to heart function and seems to protect against high blood pressure and heart disease, mostly around how it can reduce blood pressure and how it can assist in reducing arterial stiffness. Interestingly, people living in areas with hard water, which contains high concentration of calcium and magnesium, tend to have lower rates of heart disease, so this indicates a role for this mineral here. In regard to a benefit for magnesium on lowering blood pressure, it is mostly seen when either a person is low in magnesium levels in the body to start with, or if they have already an elevated blood pressure. Magnesium supplementation has also been linked to a benefit on glucose metabolism, especially in people with diabetes. Magnesium may be helping with improved insulin function, so this could explain the link. The benefit, though, appears to be small and seems to mostly occur in people who are on the verge of developing type 2 diabetes or already have problems with glucose metabolism. Sleep quality is another area that comes up when discussions turn to magnesium supplementation. While magnesium is very commonly recommended for helping with sleep quality, the research base is small, 
but appears to show a small benefit when taken by people who report bad sleep quality. Its role here may be as a sedative-like agent. Now, because magnesium is an electrolyte and has a key role in muscle contraction, a deficiency is thought to have some relationship to muscle cramping. The evidence here, though, is from observations of a higher rate of muscle cramping coinciding with lower serum magnesium levels, which is seen in pregnant women and people experiencing night cramps in the calf muscle. Another piece in the puzzle is that very low serum magnesium levels are associated with severe muscle cramping and muscle pain. That being said, a very broad Cochrane review and meta-analyses in a wide range of patient groups found that magnesium was not able to reduce the risk of cramps, though there were no randomized controlled trials evaluating magnesium for exercise-associated muscle cramps. So it is unclear if supplementation would help athletes who are frequent crampers. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. So magnesium deficiency in otherwise healthy individuals eating a balanced diet is rare. The kidney has an extraordinary ability to reduce magnesium loss in the urine and thus achieve magnesium balance on a wide variety of dietary intakes. While there are many food sources of magnesium, there is no one single food that stands out. So even the best sources tend to only meet about one-fifth of a person's needs. Since magnesium is part of chlorophyll, which is the green pigment in plants, green leafy vegetables are good sources of magnesium, with spinach being one of the best sources. Whole grains and nuts, such as almonds, also have good amounts of magnesium in them. Meats and milk have an intermediate content of magnesium, while refined foods generally have the lowest. Even with an adequate diet, some people are at increased risk of magnesium deficiency, including people with digestive disorders such as celiac disease and chronic diarrhea. In the short term, getting too little magnesium does not produce any obvious symptoms. Low magnesium intakes for a long period of time, however, can lead to magnesium deficiency. Also, some medical conditions and medications interfere with the body's ability to absorb magnesium, or they increase the amount of magnesium that the body excretes, which can also lead to magnesium deficiency. Symptoms of magnesium deficiency include loss of appetite, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, and weakness. More extreme magnesium deficiency can cause numbness, tingling, muscle cramps, seizures, and an abnormal heart rhythm. So what about supplements? Magnesium supplements are sometimes marketed as magical elixirs that can fix a long list of health problems such as muscle tension and cramps, low energy levels, and insomnia. But as I outlined earlier, the evidence to support many of these claims in otherwise healthy people is not that strong. Deficiency, though, is not unknown, so because a dietary deficiency can be common, magnesium supplements are popular, and there are many different formulations to choose from, with the standard dose for magnesium supplementation in the range of 200 to 400 milligrams per day. Magnesium as a supplement is bound to other molecules, typically salts, which is, and this process is known as a chelation. 
This is to stabilize the magnesium and prevent cross-reaction with other minerals. Magnesium supplements are available as magnesium oxide, magnesium malate, magnesium gluconate, magnesium chloride, magnesium citrate salts, as well as several amino acid chelates, like magnesium aspartate. Gastrointestinal side effects like diarrhea and bloating are more common when magnesium oxide or magnesium chloride are used due to the lower absorption rates of these two forms and is why magnesium oxide tends to be used as a laxative. Magnesium chloride is easily absorbed orally and used to treat heartburn, constipation and low magnesium levels. In general, magnesium citrate is a good choice for supplementation and is the most commonly used form of magnesium due to its high water solubility and bioavailability at around 25 to 30%. Another gentle form for those sensitive to magnesium oxide or magnesium citrate is magnesium malate. It is often recommended for people suffering from fatigue and symptoms of fibromyalgia but no current scientific evidence supports this. Magnesium bound to amino acids such as magnesium aspartate show good levels of bioavailability, but tend to be lesser than magnesium citrate. Magnesium L-threonate is another supplemental form of magnesium and it is the salt formed from mixing magnesium and threoninic acid, which is a water-soluble substance derived from the metabolic breakdown of vitamin C. This supplement has begun to be looked into specifically for increasing brain magnesium levels. Some emerging research on its cognitive effects suggests that supplementation may be of benefit to people with Alzheimer's disease, but it is still early days here. And I'll link to one of these prelim studies in the show notes if you want to read more. So now on to my research wrap-up segment, where I profile a study that has grabbed my attention during the week. And this study is especially relevant as we come out of ISO life, with many people sporting new cooking skills they previously did not know they had. The art of the home-cooked meal is suffering a decline, which means a new generation of young adults could be missing out on developing valuable cooking skills. Developing cooking and food preparation skills is important for nutritional well-being. While this may seem like a sound premise and has fueled many cooking programs for both adults and children, surprisingly there has not been a lot of research to show that this translates into long-term health many years later. Bolstering the rationale for getting busy in the kitchen, a 10-year observational study looked at how early life cooking skills translated into later life eating habits. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. Researchers from the University of Minnesota's School of Public Health tracked more than 1,100 young adults aged between 18 and 23 after first asking them about their perceived level of cooking skills. About a quarter of the participants reported that their cooking skills were very adequate, with another half describing their ability in the kitchen as adequate. For both groups of young adults, they were more likely to be preparing meals with vegetables and eating less fast food as adults 10 years later, compared to those who initially said they had inadequate cooking skills. 
For the people with good cooking skills who went on to have children, they were much more likely to sit down with them for regular family meals. And this is noteworthy as families that eat together are more likely to be eating more vegetables and fewer processed foods. There is a good reason for rediscovering the lost art of cooking for young people today. And this new research shows that developing cooking skills through emerging adulthood can have long-term benefits for nutrition many years later. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it, or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues, or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible, evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to dilute out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition. Thinking Nutrition.